One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Lisa Taylor, professor, journalist, lawyer, joining us from Halifax. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right today, Lisa. My goodness. Ontario, yours in the gutter. We will sample a a veritable tasting menu of scandals from the municipal to the provincial, maybe a little newsroom scandal mixed in just for kicks. Also on today's show, fuck the police. Legally, the narwhal sues the RCMP. Welcome to Shortcuts, Lisa, where we talk shit about the news. I am here for it. Thank you. You're here for our 400th episode. Dear God, that is a lot of takes. That is an awful lot. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Anything I can do to help. This episode is brought to everybody by Catherine Walker, Cohen Rhodes, Jackie Wells, Emmett Rands, Chad Smith, Katie Millard, Patrick McLean, and Derek. Howdy, my name is Derek, and I farm the wind in Northern Ontario. I began my support to Canada Land because the guilt tripping by Jesse on the free feed was uh, surprisingly effective. But I feel like my money is supporting a good cause as Canada Land with its excellent production values and competently reported stories bring me just a little closer understanding of what's going on in Canada.
Doug Ford was first called into question after developers were invited to his daughter's steak and dough party last August. The Premier of Ontario has been cleared by the province's integrity commissioner. And we begin tonight with breaking news. The Mayor of Toronto, John Tory, announcing that he's stepping down. Following a report by the Toronto Star of an affair with a subordinate, a staffer at the time and decades younger. A political bombshell. Tory said his conduct meant he couldn't continue in the job. I've decided that I will step down as mayor so that I can take the time to reflect on my mistakes and to do the work of rebuilding the trust of my family. You Ontarians, you Torontonians, you think the whole world revolves around you. You think you're so interesting. You think it's all about you. But but isn't it, Lisa? Like this week, isn't it all about us here in Ontario? I strangely miss Ontario right now. I'm temporarily out of the province and I just to get this news agenda and it's like, oh, wow, I can practically smell the TTC right now. It's just so close to home. So yeah, you are, Ontario, defining the news agenda in the country this week. And good on you, because you've got a dumpster fire or two. We certainly do. Let's tell it. People know this, but I think maybe there's there's a point in in going through it from the very beginning. Lisa, have you previously heard of a stag and doe party? I'm afraid I have. Yeah, I, I do know that one. Yeah, in, uh, in the East Coast, we might call it a time. A stag and doe feels like a Western thing, but to each their own. I've been vaguely aware of this ritual. I've always thought of it as something that like, you know, it was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well. Like when <laughs> when a couple is like really trying to put, pull together a few bucks for their wedding, they'll have a get together, a fundraiser at the Legion or at a bar and, you know, friends come in and pitch in like, you know, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. I am unfamiliar with a stag and doe party where a rich kid has like flyers sent to the rich business people, friends of their parents that say you got to bring a thousand dollars and an extra $150 will get you a ticket to a raffle for a scooter. That is what happened at the stag and doe party for Doug Ford's daughter back in August. Well, I'm taking her off my list of people to worry about, I think, because I think she's going to do okay. That's ridiculous. I mean, have you ever heard of a party like that? Like, it doesn't seem normal to me, but I don't know what everybody does. Maybe maybe that's normal? No. Are you kidding? No, I'm with you. It's the 20 or the 50 in a Hallmark card on your way to the event, which is in a church hall or a fire hall, like it should be. Nothing is more personal and private than your family. And uh, going to a, a stag is not unusual for anyone listening, you know, but, but more importantly, uh, this is something very private and personal to our, to our family. Yeah, you know, this was reported by Global News, and they spoke to people who had been invited and didn't come, one of whom said, like, the, the invite seemed really dodgy and that they felt browbeaten into buying tickets to this raffle, door prizes, uh, just very strange stuff. It's highly relevant here that among Doug Ford's friends, his personal friends who were invited to this thing, are developers who benefited from Doug Ford in like a number of different ways. Like a bunch of these developers got municipal zoning orders that allowed them to develop land and make a lot of money off of it. They also, at least a couple of them, had public appointments from Doug Ford. And I think probably most importantly, some of them are Greenbelt developers. They bought land before you could develop on it. And then through Doug Ford reversing himself on a promise to not uh, open up the Greenbelt to development, suddenly their land is worth like we're talking like potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're certainly beneficiaries of policies from Doug Ford. And I remember, Lisa, when 
my colleagues at Wag the Doug were kind of scratching their heads when Jonathan and Allison were saying like, you know, it's easy and lazy and cynical to say like, oh, Doug Ford's somehow benefiting. Why is he doing all these favors? Is it just because they're his friends? It's not really convincing that he's doing it for campaign donations because there's limits on those and no one knows of any secret bank account. So like what's in it for Doug Ford to take the political hit and reverse himself on these decisions? Well... Throwing your daughter a wedding can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if your buddies come and are dropping $1,000 a person, I guess it's indirect. I guess it's technically indirect. But that that is money that Doug Ford doesn't have to spend. It's pretty close to direct. It's pretty close to direct. So it becomes the most kind of cool-headed political calculus that you know happens all the time. It just usually doesn't involve, you know, fret linen or 500 thread count towels or whatever. And that is the calculus of what will the political hit cost me and what will the benefit be? And I think Doug Ford was probably feeling pretty damn secure in the fact that, you know, the the fallout in public opinion was going to be pretty damn manageable. And the windfall here, and I'm going to call it a direct benefit for the reason you said, because it's a wedding. It's, it's stuff that the Fords aren't paying for as they launch one of those kids. But I think to a lobbyist or a political operative, they would kind of poo-poo all of this and say, this is the system working as it should. This is, this, is, this is the game we've set up and we're playing it. And guess what? It's working just like we thought. This is a tale as old as time. We put together all kinds of regulations and things, anti-corruption, to stop people from doing quid pro quo and abusing the power that they have. But if, if the problem that you and I are trying to solve, Lisa, is I really want some quid pro quo. I want to get money into your pocket and I just can't be seen doing it. It's such a creative problem. There's so many creative solutions. How can I get that money to you? Do you have a brother-in-law? Is there some kind of stock situation? Maybe your kid's getting married. I mean, there's, there's like wonderful innovations in corruption in how to get money. You will find a way to get them the money. You sound cynical. You sound down with love here. That, that's how I'm interpreting this. <laughs> How dare I? This is two people getting married, and how dare I? Yeah. No, this is really, really obvious and gross. It's the kind of thing that journalists are looking for. And I want to get meta here and talk a little bit about the journalist that actually learned about this first, as far as we know. And that is Charlie Pinkerton, who has one of the best names of any reporter I can think of. Charlie Pinkerton was a reporter for QP Briefing. Listeners can be forgiven if they have never heard of Queens Park Briefing. It's one of uh, several specialty publications covering the legislature. And I think it was at that fateful day when Doug Ford swallowed a bee at a press conference that Charlie Pinkerton says he got the tip uh, that he learned about the stag and doe party. And that's a big story for QP briefing. And he was working on that story and he went to Doug Ford's office for comment on this story. Who was at the party and what's the propriety here? And after he goes to Doug Ford's office for comment, that's when Doug Ford goes to the integrity commissioner and didn't do it preemptively, didn't say, oh, this party is going to happen. After the press finds out about it and that comes to Ford's attention, that's when they go to the integrity commissioner. And the way it works is anybody can go to the integrity commissioner. And this is not an investigation by the integrity commissioner. The integrity commissioner receives materials from Doug Ford. Doug Ford says, I had no knowledge of the gifts. I didn't know about the gifts and nobody discussed government business at this party. And on that basis, the integrity commissioner tells Doug Ford that this was kosher. And Doug Ford, you know, later in expressing his shock and dismay that this is a line of inquiry from the press says that he got 
1,000% clearance from the Integrity Commissioner. I went to the Integrity Commissioner. He cleared it 1,000%, not 999, 1,000%. Yes, it is so offensive, yes, to get that. What? Me? How could anybody think such a thing? Yeah, 1,000% in the clear. That's offensive. I'm stuck for a better word on this one. But what else could it look like? But what it was and this kind of chasing the after the fact, it's kind of like, oh, I've still got those few dishes to return to the rental place. And oh, right. I have to drop those documents with the integrity commissioner. Like, really? (laughs) I mean, to the premier's defense, that's 900 percent more than 100 percent. Like, that's a lot. You know, I shouldn't argue with data. You're right. So here's where things get really interesting to me, anyhow, with my weird little fascinations and fixations, because you think that. This is a hell of a scoop for QP briefing, but it doesn't run. And Charlie Pinkerton is sitting on this story and his editor, Jessica Smith-Cross and Charlie are getting a little frustrated. The story goes through the lawyers at QP briefing. It gets lawyered twice, but the story is being held up. Now their timing kind of sucks here because of course, the two owners of Torstar, Jordan Bitov and Paul Rivette are breaking up and QP briefing is one of the children in the in the custody battle here. Who's going to get QP briefing? And somehow this is like, please be patient with us. The story is just being held up and the, and the divorce is, is one of the reasons why. And, you know, it's burning a hole in their pocket. They're sitting on this amazing scoop. And finally, Jessica Smith-Cross, we have learned, and there's been some terrific reporting after the fact by the Toronto Star about the journalistic process here. Finally, the editor-in-chief demands, why are we not publishing the story? What's going on here? It's my job to get you stories like this. Why are we sitting on this scoop? And word comes back that the owners, and it's it's actually being reported that it was Paul Rivette himself, basically spiked the story and said, you know, the tone is off and Jessica Smith-Cross demands, no, we can work on the tone. Is there any information in this story that you are unwilling to publish? And they say, you know what, all this stuff about these developers getting public appointments and the per diems they're getting and the salaries they're getting. It's very insinuating of impropriety and we don't feel like you've got the goods here. We're not publishing it. And that's when Jessica Smith-Cross and Charlie Pinkerton, to their credit, resign in protest. And that is the only part of this story that does not make my stomach turn. It's encouraging to hear that. And it is so goddamn offensive to hear this idea of, oh, it's the tone and it's and it's the logical conclusions that people may draw from the story. That That's what we're concerned about here, that there are clear logical inferences. Readers are going to get them. And that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And there's two problems. You could point to dozens of other QP briefing stories where this is what we do. We point out the connections that people have and we leave it to the reader to come to their own conclusion if there's any impropriety, you know, unless we can demonstrate that there's specific laws broken. But the idea that we can't lay those facts out because they're too suggestive, like this is what these reporters and editors are trying to do is find these stories. So the the argument itself is not a sound newsroom argument, but the argument shouldn't be made by the ownership. My understanding is this is the only time that the owners intervened. Paul Rivette, businessman with Fairfax, apparently of the two partners, Beethoven, Rivette, Rivette was the one who wanted to get ownership's hands more into the editorial. Why would Rivette block a story that's really bad for Doug Ford? Rivette or someone close to him bought the big Le Creuset casserole, perhaps? (laughs) It's the people they travel with. And this is the challenge that we have between kind of the ethos and the purpose of the shop floor and, you know, who these kind of 
you know, national scale corporate players are who are getting involved in, in kind of the ownership of entities that produce content, they would call it journalism, you and I will call it. It's, you know, who, what circles are they in? And, and quite frankly, where are their loyalties? Speaking truth to power, this is giving power a freebie. Yeah, I mean, and these circles that you speak of, I mean, who might Paul Rivette be in league with? Can we even speculate? Oh, his co-owner, Brian Storseth, former conservative MP. But let us not insinuate. We must not insinuate or suggest. It's just simply a fact that Brian Storseth is one of the co-owners of QP Briefing and uh, is a former conservative MP. So, yeah, they walk off the job, those reporters, and and the story comes out anyhow from Global News. I think it was probably going to, like, once, once Ford goes to the Integrity Commissioner, it's going to come out. And Global News reports it out. And then the Toronto Star reports the meta stuff about Pinkerton and Rivette and... Smith Cross and and then just as things are looking as as bad as can be for Doug Ford, oh my God, John Tory. Yeah. What incredibly fortunate timing for Doug Ford. Holy cats. No one saw this one coming. John Tory, first the story, he's uh, had an affair with a staffer starting when she was 29, it seems, and then he he resigns that night. Wow. Everyone's talking about that. Now, let's take a moment here to talk about this Tory story. The star gets results. Certainly, uh, this is, this is a, <laughs> a Toronto Star story that, that like, if there are any questions about the relevance of the press, the star certainly is impactful here. I saw quite a bit of congratulations to David Ryder, the head of their City Hall Bureau, for breaking the story. I saw a lot of people in the journalistic community saying, you know, good on you, star. And I had a little thought in the back of my head throughout this that I was having trouble, like, you know, how do I feel about this story? And then of all people, who should articulate what I was thinking? Rosie DeMano. <laughs> Sorry, there's something wrong with my audio. It sounded like you just said Rosie DeMano. On our 400th episode of Shortcuts, a first, I'm going to agree with Rosie. Here's what Rosie DeMano wrote. The star has historically a weird puritanical streak. I don't question the reporting. I question why it was published. Where is the public service in outing an intensely private matter that appeared to have no political relevance, no legal shakiness, no employment inequity? I would not have run it. Lisa, what is the public interest argument for running the John Tory sex scandal story? Okay, so leaving aside the salacious, ew, she's almost old enough. So that's, you're right, that's not public interest. That's what people are talking about, but that's not public interest. The public interest is where this intersects with the job site. It's the city of Toronto junior employee status. Yes, we're all quite certain she didn't report directly to the mayor. It's, you know, it's municipal bureaucracy. There has to be 85 people between her and the mayor in an employment sense. First of all, this was during the pandemic. We wanted John Tory to be doing more important things than having a relationship outside his marriage. All we heard was how damn hard he was working. This was someone who had a different focus during a really important time in our history, we've seen the problems these dynamics cause. You've reported on the problems these dynamics cause. So it's not a pearl-clutchy kind of, oh, that's just inappropriate. It's a, this doesn't work in a workplace in 2023. Or if it's going to work in a workplace, be proactive. Again, back to making the declarations, back to ensuring that there are clear lines of division, all of that. And then that's even before we get into the question of where this 
former girlfriend has now landed. You've got it right, but there's an interesting word you use that it's not just about it being inappropriate. Because I heard David Ryder on a podcast talking about the public interest case and why he felt there was one. The main concern for us reporting this all the way through was, did a personal relationship start between a married mayor and a young staffer while she was working in his office and essentially under his control? I think in the post-Me Too environment, not everybody, a lot of people would agree that that is inappropriate. It's, a, it's actually the word that he used. You're correct that he said, you know, if, if this had just been an affair, we probably wouldn't have run it. And there's a long history in Canada that we don't publish stories on the extramarital affairs of politicians just because they're married and they're, and they're politicians. Mm-hmm. There has to be something more to it. There has to be like this somehow affects their job in some way or breaks a law, breaks a rule. What Ryder said was that what it came down to was that it was inappropriate. Now, the language here is is important because you can't say that it broke a policy. There's like some vague language that the mayor should, you know, try to be ethical in his life. But there's no like, like morality clause that like if you cheat on your wife, you have to resign as mayor. And there's no workplace rules explicitly forbidding a relationship uh, at City Hall between the mayor or any superior and a subordinate, that is certainly something that we frown upon. It's certainly something that we're much more aware of the power imbalance. It's certainly something that's been going on forever and still going on today. And there are even, you know, marriages that come out of people getting together in the workplace who did not necessarily have the same place on the org chart. I think that this is the first time in Canadian political reporting where we've moved the needle into, this is the word David Ryder used, it was an inappropriate relationship. And this actually buttresses what Rosie DeMano was saying. This is in the star's estimation, because there's no law about what's appropriate at City Hall, nor are there any City Hall policies about this is explicitly inappropriate. It's sort of just the culture has now deemed this to be inappropriate, and the star says this is inappropriate. And that's what they're basing the, the, the public interest case for this reporting on. Yeah, you know, I feel really seen in a bad way that you've caught me on the word inappropriate because you're right. I started this conversation with the whole idea of let's not go all pearl clutchy. And when you start talking about that's just inappropriate, well, guess what? You're there. But I will also reject, uh, I think, your assertion that all matters of ethics and judgment will always be codified somewhere you know, even in even in government. And they're not going to be. I haven't decided yet if Tory was kind of in a self-serving get out ahead of this thing, or if that was genuine remorse. I guess it's probably some combination of the two. But one thing that I did take was that whether there's something written down, whether, whether there is a provision that says you can't be doing this, I got the sense that he knew he shouldn't have been doing that. It was interesting, though, to hear, and this was like uh, David Ryder was on the Toronto Star's podcast, so it was two Toronto Star journalists talking with each other, and the host was, like, congratulating Ryder. High-fiving, I heard. Crazy Friday night news. Listen, <laughs> <I mean, laughs> yeah. as a colleague of yours and a fellow journalist, amazing work. They actually use the phrase, we're bringing shame back. And in a way, this is kind of like the return of shame. I think there was also some high-fiving around the idea of, yes, another mayor. We got one. We got another another, We bagged another mayor. Yeah. Yeah, which was, there was time for a quick shower after that. But there's a lot of skeevy to go around, isn't there? You know, I don't want to, like, act holier than that because I would have run it. But let's be clear about the public interest. Should we publish it? Shouldn't we? That's not how this happened. Right. 
There was a period of time where the star had the story in various pieces and was like, I don't know, should we, shouldn't we? It depends if it crosses the line. But the way that this actually played out, and David Ryder kind of revealed this, was that they they got a first tip that Tori's marriage was in trouble, and they were like, I don't know, should we publish this? And they got word back from Tori that kind of confirmed it but asked them not to do anything with it. It's private. And then they got another tip that it involved a staffer, and they sent questions about that still you know, uh, assumedly not sure, depending on the answers, are we going to publish this or aren't we? And the timeline goes, writers, sources give him certain information. That's how he put it. Certain information that Tory was going to resign based on the questions. Like Star hasn't published yet. So once the Star knows that Tory is about to resign based on their story, there's no newsroom conversation about the ethics of publishing or not. They're going to fucking publish. The news cycle is about to get away from them, and it's their story. Mm-hmm. That's a tradition at the Star. They sat on the Rob Ford crack story until Gawker published it, and then they went. Right. I was working with them on Gameshi. They had that story for a while, and then Gameshi goes first on Facebook, and that's what prompted them. They went, Something else prompts them, and that's when they publish. So we could pretend that this is actually like they're sitting there really thinking about the ethics of it, but th- th- that's how these things actually play out. I think whatever discomfort or, or distaste is stopping people from actually, you know, pulling that lever is suddenly out the window. You're right. And it's like, okay, it's go time. It's kind of interesting because it's almost like if they sit and wait, eventually, I think whoever is in the crosshairs is going to get a little too squirrely. And once that happens, then the star says, oh, well, they've put it out there. That's it. Tough decision sidestepped. Yeah. Reality made the decision for them. Now let's return to our initial conspiratorial musings on what these stories have to do with each other. Certainly, this was an amazingly fortunate story for Doug Ford, but is there any connection beyond that? Pretty much every civilian I've spoken to is absolutely convinced that like, there's no way that, that it's a coincidence that just when Ford is in the hot seat, this story breaks from out of the blue. I don't see why this is such a big uh, news story when we should be focused on a premiere that... Um Dines like Don Corleone and takes, uh, the daughter takes envelopes of cash. Lisa, my initial response when non-news people told me with such cynical certainty that this was somehow Ford pulling the strings on Tory, I was like, come on, don't be so tinfoil hat about this. Like, how does that even work? It was the star who was reporting on Ford, one of the news sources reporting on Ford. Why would they Why would they want to distract from their own story? I was pretty convinced that there was nothing to that. But I've been talking to journalists and reporters, and there is, there is a theory that's going around. It's not confirmed. But if you look at the timelines of when things were known, it lines up that the second tip that the star got, the one that actually pushed this John Tory story onto the front page, that it's not just that his marriage is breaking up, it's that he dated somebody in his office. That was the piece of information that made this reportable to the star. That tip came to David Ryder somewhere between Thursday, February 2nd and Saturday, February 4th. And that is like just a few days after Doug Ford's office would have known for sure that the stag and doe stuff was coming out. If you if you work back from the global reporting and when they were given a chance to give comment, it's like they know the stag and doe story is coming out. And then a few days later, the star gets a tip that John Tory has been having an affair with this young woman. I hear you and I hate to not help you run with this one, but I don't know if it makes me the most naive person in the room because I think 
no, couldn't, or the most cynical person, because I think it just couldn't be that cleverly orchestrated that well, that quickly. Just there's not a smooth enough operator in the room. But I think sometimes coincidences are just coincidences. I should probably turn in my journalist card with that, but I can't imagine it. Coincidences might be coincidences. I guess I would push back on the idea that this is such a skilled, it's more of a blunt hammer. Like people are going through old photos and they're seeing Tori with the, the woman in question at various events, looking a little bit too close. It's pretty reasonable to think that people in Tori's circle were aware of this relationship or suspected this relationship. It's not that big a stretch to think that word might have gotten to Ford's camp. So the idea that Ford or people around him would be in possession of this knowledge about Tory, mm-hmm. when you're trying to war room a big embarrassing story for Doug Ford about the stag and doe thing, and you're like, well, what can we do here for damage control? I don't think it's that great a leap to imagine like, well, one good thing that could go our way is if something bigger happens, you know? But I don't know any of this. This is all wild speculation based on verified facts on a, on a demonstrated timeline. <laughs> Okay. When you lay it all out, it's plausible, I guess. Maybe I've given too much credit for uh, yeah, for the skillfulness of the move. It's not exactly high-level diplomacy, but then wow, then my head spins because that's some pretty Machiavellian shit. I'll keep going. This is a different type of Machiavellian shit, but to the question of John Tory simply being motivated by personal shame to resign— you know, we're learning about the conversations he had with all the advisors where they sat down and they war roomed. Is there any path to, to keeping the job here? And, you know, if he was just morally compelled to spare the young woman in question, the embarrassment and his family and to spare the city, the long drawn out process of clinging to office and facing these embarrassing questions, you know, that clashes with the many days he spent trying to find a way to wiggle out of this and maintain his position as mayor. If you're going to bow out, you could you could bow out as soon as you know that this is known. Mm-hmm. But we could go a little bit further because all we've heard so far, Lisa, is that like nobody could figure out a way out of this for the mayor. And so like everything ended in him, him resigning. Every like scenario or model where he tries to keep the job ends with him resigning. But we actually are living through right now a timeline that might conceivably see him as the ongoing mayor of Toronto. And here's the hypothetical. He announces that he is resigning. We don't go through all of the extra questions. We don't go through uh, every presser he has. No, he's resigning. It takes the wind out of that completely. And almost instantly, there's a backlash to him resigning. And Doug Ford lends his support to John Tory. And Torontonians are polled. Do you forgive John Tory? Do you still want him to be mayor? And a narrative starts to build that he should still be mayor. And it's been pointed out he has not actually officially, like, resigned. He's just stated his intention to resign. He's going to resign. Exactly. It's it's future tense, always, yes. He's going to resign. He's still sticking around to do the budget. But, you know, he could run in the by-election. Or maybe there's some, I don't know, am I a nut? Is it possible that this is actually the only path that leads to him holding on to that role is is saying that you're going to resign actually is the play? I mean, I don't know if that was the play at the time, but the idea that Tory can live to fight another day in the by-election. And then one of the things that will help him um, will be just the degree of ridiculousness of the first characters out of the gate. Toronto is a city still healing from the past trauma of the Ford administration. That would be the Mayor Rob Ford administration. And if people come out who are too Rob Ford-esque in any 
kind of way, shape or form, people are going to get nervous and they're going to say, can we have the boring guy who did nothing worse than let his hair grow long and have that affair with the 30 year old? We'd really like him back. Yeah. I mean, I, I really feel like this is a fun news story to gawk at, but actually something that nobody in Toronto really wants to have happened. It's just completely extraneous. We just went through an election that was like the most unenthusiastic election ever. You know, there's lots of people who are mad at him for other reasons and pretty good ones, but they're not the majority here. I'm increasingly like open to this possible reality because in the early moments when he resigned so quickly, all of the smart money was on, oh, there's way more to this. There's way more to this. And, you know, we're going to find out that he got her a job at MLSC or we're going to find out that, that he obviously he spent money on her public funds or there's more women. And that may all still happen. But as each day passes, and I was, I was just kind of reading like David Ryder's tone as he's been talking about the story. Sometimes you can tell with a reporter when they're like, oh, you just wait. I'm sitting <laughs> on a whole lot more. You just wait. And I was not getting that sense from him. I'm not getting that sense at all. I kind of got the sense that there was an entire package. We, you know, we did tie a hasty bow on it, but we got that package out the door. I mean, if a few more details make it to journalists' email inboxes in the coming weeks, I think the bar will be set kind of high. A story has to grow. It can't be like the same, but lesser than. In particular, because Tory has, you know, appears to be at least in the process of a pretty full-throated apology and acknowledgement on this one. This is not like being a Rob Ford still denying that you, you know, have multiple addictions and still, you know, questioning the veracity of, of videos of you being hammered at 3 a.m. downtown. We're in the hot moment still and things are happening and it's exciting, but like I, I'm, I, I, Scandal for scandal, like one is so much more important than the other. One is so much more egregious to our, our lives, our democracy. Like the things that are suggested by this unfolding Ford story really do matter a whole lot. And if at the end of the day, one of these politicians is out from their little scandal and the other one kind of coasts, it's a little bit revolting. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Lisa, here on Shortcuts, we want to duly note stories that might otherwise escape people's attention. What do you have to duly note today? I would like to duly note a story from Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, the birthplace of Confederation, you may have heard. Not a fiercely democratic place at the moment, not city council there, since we're talking about city councils. City council in Charlottetown, uh, there's been an analysis of public records done that says it has spent more time in in in-camera meetings, closed door meetings, than open sessions of council this year. It's probably in violation of the Municipal Government Act of the province. And it seems like the bar is set tremendously low in in Charlottetown in terms of what will trigger an in-camera meeting. Duly noted, and there's so many ways that we could measure as journalism dies, uh, government secrecy just gets more and more secrety. I want to duly note an update on a story that we first talked about like three years ago. The Toronto police... We're getting into podcasting. They're commissioning copaganda, branded podcasts about the police, by the police. And those podcasts have been coming out. Let's let's hear a little bit. Welcome to 24 Shades of Blue Missing Persons Edition. I'm your host, Andy O'Brien. On July 30, 1985... Eight-year-old Nicole Moran left her parents' apartment in Etobicoke to meet a friend in the lobby for a swim. That day, she never met with her friend and has been missing ever since. All right. What what I want to duly note is is not anything qualitative about that podcast. I'll hold my tongue. Right. What I want to duly note is not the, the recent revelation that CBC Toronto reported that the Toronto police spent $337,000 on that podcast series from OB and Axe, that's the production house. And the CBC had uh, really interesting email communications from the cops where the cops said, Andy O'Brien from OB and Axe is, is, is a character with mad skills in startups. <laughs> he runs the cool podcast I showed you the deck on. These are the cops planning their podcast game. I'm not duly noting how lame that is, nor that they got ripped off and they spent way too much on that podcast. What I want to duly note is that now when I get murdered and the cops fail to find my killer, I don't only have to worry about like murderinos and, you know, basement uh, crime podcasts capitalizing on my death, but the goddamn police who failed to solve my murder are now going to be releasing podcasts about how they fucked up and couldn't find my killer. That's what I want to duly note. Duly noted. One more story from the Maritimes. It is about a well-known food product here. Don't guess it yet. I just want to set you up here a bit and tell you, Jesse, have you ever played Spelling Bee? It's the New York Times game. As a matter of fact, I have. Hey, you ever been Queen Bee? No. No, I have not. Okay. You will. You'll get there. Anyhow, so... Spelling bee is like the lesser known cousin to Wordle, but infinitely more fun, I would suggest. It has broken the hearts of Maritimers, and you want to get behind this one because I know that you're not doing so well on the West Coast. So why don't you try the best coast? I know you're <laughs> never going to stop the shame of that one. Spelling bee did not, on February 13th, recognize the word donaire. It has decided that donaire is a word too obscure or perhaps offensive to show up among its results. Halifax is pissed. Lisa, you are aware of where donaires come from, are you not? The donaire comes from 
Bedford, Nova Scotia in the 1970s, because this is no donor kebab. Oh, we're making a distinction. This is the saddest part of being Canadian. This is like when Canadians are like, it's a Muskoka chair. It's an Adirondack chair. <laughs> no, this is another thing. A donair is not an East. It's Turkish. <laughs> it's somebody else's thing. You can't just. No, it's not as cool as a donor kebab. Okay. Because you put sweet mayo on it? And you make it with beef. You make it with beef, and then you take, it is the most unholy alliance of maritime ingredients. You take sweetened condensed milk, mix it with some vinegar and powdered garlic to make a sauce. I'm so embarrassed for you. Duly noted. I'd rather have the donor kebab, but you know, it's my birthright. Okay, one last one. Our listeners are familiar with Joey Coleman, who's like just a one-man accountability engine. Amen. In Hamilton, and he he just like... This guy running his camera on like some council meeting as to the zoning of a swimming pool. Like nobody else is there. He is keeping the politicians in Hamilton honest and some of them don't like him for it. There's been physical confrontations. They've been trying to push him out of there forever. Well, today, as we tape, uh, it's a Wednesday and our listeners can check to see how this rolls because today, Hamilton City Council are going to vote on a journalism bylaw that would ban journalists, but like really it's a Joey Coleman ban. Mm -hmm. And this is Joey Coleman got in touch that people need to know about this. He's being pushed out. And it really is like a funding agreement for rent-free offices between the city and a bunch of established journalists. And like the impact of this is that only government subsidized media are going to have full access to Hamilton City Hall, to all of the different uh, media events. It's going to block him from like even plugging in his camera for live streaming these events when he needs a battery fill up. Like in his opinion, I would suggest it's going to impact a lot of people, but in his opinion, this is a no Joey's law and it's gross. And I hope that when people check to see what happened, they'll see that city councilors in Hamilton preserved, like he is doing such a public service and I hope he gets to keep doing it. And I want people to know the pressures that he's facing. I would like to put in one plug for Joey Coleman's tremendous work and flag the fact that Joey's work was featured in a documentary called After Fact that was released in the early days of the pandemic and did not get much attention because, well, we were all preoccupied with watching the world fall apart. And to see this, I've also had the good pleasure of working with Joey He's an individual doing as much as anyone in this country, doing it as a one-man operation to ensure that we understand what politicians are doing for us and sometimes against us. Joey deserves our support because he really is what this business is about. Uh, So that is duly noted. Thank you. This episode, once again, it is brought to everyone by FreshBooks, the Initial founding sponsor of Canada Land. If you are running your own business, you know how hard it is to keep track of your accounting. The numbers side of things, that is not why you're in business. You are in business for the thing that you're in business for. The other thing, your thing. You got to try FreshBooks. It'll save you up to 11 hours a week by streamlining and automating bookkeeping and accounting. FreshBooks is going to help you get a handle on time tracking, invoicing, expense tracking, so you don't have to agonize over this stuff. And wow, with tax time coming up, this is the all-in-one accounting software that you need. Your accountant is going to thank you. They can just plug into FreshBooks, get the information they need. You're not going to be in some last-minute panic. Those last-minute panics with accountants cost you money. Get on this. Use FreshBooks. You get the money back that you spend on it in all of the time. Here is a special offer just for Candleland listeners. Head over to www.freshbooks.com slash Candleland. You'll get 90% off your FreshBooks subscription for four months. That is an amazing deal. www.freshbooks.com slash Candleland. Check it out. 
Lisa, the narwhal, along with photojournalist Amber Bracken, they are suing the RCMP. The arrest and detainment of Amber Bracken should never have happened. Unfortunately, the RCMP's mistreatment of Amber was just one in the latest in a string of incidents that display a troubling lack of regard for freedom of the press by Canadian police. Canada listeners will remember this. I had Amber on the show to talk about this. She and Michael Toledano were covering the coastal gas link pipeline expansion on Wet'suwet'en territory, and they were arrested while committing some journalism. Amber was working for the Narwhal. This is November 2021. And here's what that arrest sounded like. You're under arrest. So the RCMP said that this was the enforcement of a court injunction along with the protesters, land defenders, what have you. The journalists were taken into custody and they were detained for days in cold cells. Amber Bracken was released a few days later. And the charges have been dropped against these two journalists, but that is not the end of the story. The narwhal is fighting back. They are taking the fight directly to the RCMP through the courts, and they are seeking a ruling from the courts that make it very clear that this is against the law. We know that this is against the law. Lisa, you're a lawyer. Can we can we talk about the legality of these exclusion zones? It's not just this one story that this has been an issue. No, the, the idea of this exclusion zone we've seen in uh, several key Indigenous protests in recent times, like Landback Lane, Ferry Creek. Um, and this is a creation of a relatively new, because we say so, concept created by the RCMP. The fact that they will carve off a swath of territory that doesn't have any of the limitations that we're used to when journalists are kind of kept away from the action. They're usually exercised with some reasonability of judgment about how far away is enough. This is just saying you can't can't go get close enough to any of this to see what is happening. It's an incredible strike against freedom of the press, but, you know, it's, it sounds relatively benign. It's, it's just a zone, Jesse. It's an exclusion zone. No big deal. So, yes, it's, it's a tremendous problem. And it seems to happen in particular when we have the RCMP dealing with Indigenous land defenders, and we need eyes on the ground. This is a fight that I think needs to happen because there's been a lot of analysis every time the cops keep journalists from documenting things or even worse, arresting people or moving them. Sometimes they drive them away. And it gets pointed out again and again that they're not allowed to do this. And I think that there's even been some judicial commentary on this that's sort of affirming journalists' right to cover this stuff. But it just keeps happening. I don't know much about how these things work, but I guess the idea here, I don't really think that this lawsuit is about money and they're not asking for a lot of money. This is about setting a precedent? Oh, it's, it's entirely about setting a precedent. I think at a different time when journalism was better resourced in Canada, we would have seen this fight play out in courts right now. But what happens is it's an incredibly punitive process. In fact, the process itself is the punishment. You know, the Bracken case is, is greater by degrees. I mean, the three days in a cold cell is beyond the pale. But either way, whether it's a big intrusion or a small one, it involves stopping people from doing their job, taking away the tools with which they could do that job. For as long as the charges are live, those tools of their trade may be held. And if you're a freelance photographer like Amber Bracken, that becomes now a practical impediment. Other electronic devices are held. And then after a matter of days or weeks, the police hand the stuff back and go, oh, we're not proceeding. We're good here, right? Um, and journalists don't want to say we're good here, but 
They've got a story to file today. They're trying not to piss off the people who still control their access. And they're broke. The fact that this happened to these two journalists is not surprising. What's surprising and damned heartening is that the narwhal is stepping up and saying, we can't do what we're supposed to do in a democracy if this shit keeps happening. And that's amazing. Can you take me through like what happens next? I can't imagine that it's easy to sue the police. And I know that there's, there is a tradition and a history of civil liberties organizations and journalism outlets suing for precedents to extend, to either protect or extend press access and press freedom. What kind of a fight is ahead? Do we know anything about their chances? Have you had a look at the lawsuit? What can you tell me? I do not know the, en- enough about their chances. Um, we know that any kind of action like this, any kind of civil action against the police, you are dealing with an entity that's going to respond with a kind of scorched earth policy. They recognize how great the precedent is, and this will be can be long and drawn out, and quite frankly, can um, make it too expensive for plaintiffs to proceed. I mean, that's the challenge here. There will be a good bit of toing and froing again, because I think the RCMP people want to play this one for all the marbles. I mean, they're becoming more and more restrictive on what they provide journalists with each passing year. So I expect this is not one where they'll kind of say, okay, we'll we'll fight this as long as it doesn't go above this budgeted amount. This will go all the way. I can go back to, I think, one of the most significant cases on this and look at it on individual circumstances. And that's Justin Brake. You remember Justin Brake from Muskrat Falls? Sure, of course. So worked for the Newfoundland digital publication, The Independent, and followed land defenders uh, through a blockade and was facing charges as well, being part of the protesters who went past a line that they weren't supposed to cross. And Drake was arguing, as Canadian journalists should argue, that there needs to be basically a news gathering defense is, is what we're looking for here. That Justin Brake was not protesting. He was not crossing a, a boundary for his own benefit. He was there to actually document a news event that was significant. He was facing criminal and civil charges. When this got to the Court of Appeal in Newfoundland in 2019, we had a, a unanimous three-panel court of judges who dismissed the civil charges against him and uh, basically said that, you know, in particular in the type of journalism that Brake was doing, that the goal of reconciliation, of Indigenous reconciliation, required better understanding of Aboriginal people, and that journalists needed, here's the quote, considerable latitude to cover important stories of the day, particularly stories having to do with Indigenous issues. So that's a really unequivocal statement. The other thing that uh, the judge who wrote the decision took pains to point out in this one was, if you had an injunction dealing with the land defenders, you know, slash protesters, use that to deal with them. Because once you take away the people who are the story, it's not like the journalist is going to sit there in the empty space telling stories about what's not happening. The journalist is just kind of a tag on to the event. Yeah, and that, and that case maybe has a similarity in, in terms of the cops trying to put everybody in the same bucket saying, well, how do we know this guy's not a protester himself? Look at the kind of language he's using, calling them land defenders. As these stories increasingly get reported by independent outlets, the cops are less respectful of the of the press as the press. And they, they try to say, well, you're just another activist. One difference in those cases is that in that case, they were coming after Justin Brake. In this case, the RCMP dropped the charges and it's the media, or the Narwhal specifically, that's coming after the RCMP. There are precedents for that sort of thing, for, you know, who's bringing the fight. In this case, it's the journalists bringing the fight in order to set a precedent. That's happened a number of times before. One thing that I noticed is like, this one's a little bit different. 
one thing that I noticed that's a little bit different is that is that often in the past you'll see sort of consortiums of newsrooms or mm-hmm. consortiums of newsrooms in collaboration with consortiums of civil liberties groups getting together to present a united front. In this case, it's the Narwhal and CAJ. And I noted like, well, Michael Toledano was freelancing for the CBC, you know? That was their freelancer. Like, why aren't they a part of this? I'm wondering myself, and that's one where I've all sorts of ideas have run through my head. I mean, do you have any any more insight into, is this the other news organization standing down? I even started to wonder, you know, did the Narwhal and the CAJ kind of want to, to own this fight? But I'm just trying to understand why there isn't a pylon behind the Narwhal here. We don't fight too many fights in courts anymore as Canadian media because it's so goddamn expensive. This is one of those times to just pull it all up and go for it. I can offer some insight here because I, I was very quick to, you know, assume that the CBC had failed to stand up for their freelancer mm-hmm. and was, you know, shirking their responsibility and disowning him and, you know, acting cowardly. And, and certainly a huge organization like the CBC should be involved in this. And so I asked, I asked the Narwhal what happened here. And it turned out that they actually never asked the CBC to be involved. I found that interesting. Because, like, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of money. And usually you want as much help as you can get. You want a united front. And so I asked the Narwhal's co-founder, oh, why didn't you ask the CBC to participate? Mm-hmm. And McGillchrist told me that, yeah, they wanted to own the fight. They wanted control. And they were afraid of losing control of the legal battle if the CBC was involved. So, and, and I noted that, like, as this was rolled out, you know, there was a publicist hired and there was a press event where the Narwhal branding was front and center. So it's pretty much exactly what I would do if Canada Land was doing. If, if we're going to put in the money and the time, I would want the, frankly, the branding um, lift and their crowdfunding on this. Please fund our, our, our legal battle, which I understand the choice there. But knowing how long this takes, I guess I feel like I'm just so invested in them winning this fight. They've got one lawyer, but there are a consortium of media lawyers who do pro bono work who are not involved in this. You know, CAJ is involved, but the CCLA is not involved. The CJFE is not involved. Penn Canada is not involved. Adidam, or the Canadian Media Lawyers Association, CMLA, is also notably absent as as an intervener. Yeah, that's right. The Media Lawyers Association. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I like I said, I'd been wondering if this was a decision. We're confident in this one and we're going to win. It's an exercise in democracy, to be certain. But is it also an exercise in kind of public engagement that we're along if we're going to crowdfund, we're going to be more we're going to understand the process as we go. It was making clear we're holding power to account. And I think that's a pretty good look. In the past, we've seen news organizations do this work and nobody really knows about it except the journalists, you know, again, in the newsroom. Well, it's a good look and a big headline all around the world. And it's certainly like, you know, rally to the cause of the Narwhal's cause is press freedom's cause, is every journalist's cause. Because if they win this, that allows all of us to, to really like hammer into the RCMP that we have these rights. I want them to win. I was curious about their chances. I was curious about how these things play out. I went and looked at some recent examples here of when media have challenged cops or authorities or government. And, you know, you've got like in 2015, CGFE and CCLA launched a constitutional challenge about C-51, the anti-terrorism bill, which had certain constraints on press freedom. In 2020, the Halifax Examiner joined up with seven other news organizations to launch a court challenge to unseal documents around the Portapic massacre. And much more close to this story, in 2021, the CAJ and the Narwhal, but also 
Capital Daily Victoria, Ricochet, the National Observer, APTN, the Discourse, CJFE, they all got together with a court challenge against RCMP media restrictions at Ferry Creek, and they were successful mm-hmm. in that attempt. The only example I could find where this has been done the way that the Narwhal is doing it, where it was like one reporter, one media organization were suing the cops, that was the rebel. The rebel sued the RCMP in 2021 after David Menzies was roughed up by RCMP who were protecting Justin Trudeau, and then the rebel by themselves, you know, and I don't think they could get the support of civil liberties groups no. or other media necessarily, but they went off by themselves and said, protect press freedom, and they, they they raised money on that lawsuit as well. I'm not sure the status of that right now. So my only concern here is like, if I were heading into a battle like this, I would want as much help as I could get because it's, it's a long, long road and it goes back and forth and back and forth and the outcome really does matter. Yeah, the, the outcome really does matter. I'd like to believe, I need to believe that, you know, yes, you're right, that pro bono lawyer will be doing the work. But I also believe that there is enough collective interest in this among the media defense bar that, you know, cases and insight and analysis will, there will be assists on this one because this is the proverbial rising tide here. Good luck to them. Lisa Taylor, that is Shortcuts this week. Thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. We can be found on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that people send. Lisa, where can people find you? They can find me nowhere these days because I'm off the Twitter and not on the Mastodon. Do you want to be found? Do I even know if I exist if I'm not on one of those platforms? You can find me on faculty profile page at TMU or University of King's College. You can find Lisa on her Vespa scooter. She won the door prize at the Stagando. 100%. (laughs) Tooling around Halifax. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Egeofor. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listeners... If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on people just like you to pay for journalism. As a supporter, you're going to get stuff, premium access to all of our shows, ad-free. You'll get early releases. You'll get bonus content. We just released an Ask Me Anything that I think was fairly entertaining. You will get our exclusive newsletter. You'll get discounts on our merchandise. You'll get invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you're going to be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You will be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. 
Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.